Hey there, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Show Me the Crypto. This week, we chat with Elena Natalinsky, the founder and CEO of Ironfish. And this episode's all about privacy, why privacy is important on the blockchain. Ulf, what did you think of this episode? I loved it. Being able to talk with someone in the space who's been building privacy technology on the blockchain for over four years now it was a first opportunity we've had to do that on the show and to learn about the challenges of which there are obviously so many uh, was one part of this chat that was very interesting but then to get into how elena and ironfish are actually working on solutions how ironfish currently works and how ironfish strives to eventually evolve into the plumbing of the crypto industry in terms of facilitating privacy on any blockchain. Uh, it, it was a great episode. We covered a lot and I think you're going to love it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting to think about because in everyday life, we don't go around showing people what's in our wallets. We don't have the visibility or tell people that about all of the assets that we have, yet in crypto, that's sort of the case. And so while privacy may get a bad reputation, the reality is we really do need it if we want this to appeal to the billions that we hope to come into this industry. So as Alf said, you're going to love this episode of Show Me The Crypto. Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Alf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Elena Natalinsky, founder and CEO at Ironfish. Elena's parents, both software engineers, told her not to become a software engineer. However, reverse psychology came into play as Elena ignored their advice and began her career at Microsoft before joining the startup world and eventually discovering crypto in 2017. Ironfish is a censorship-resistant, privacy-enabled platform for everyday crypto transactions. Elena, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're excited about this conversation. And I want to start off with asking you, so congratulations. We we're talking before we hit record. You're a new mother. You just had your second child. And so are you going to implement the same psychology on your kids and tell them not to become software engineers? <laughs> Um, I think when you have a kid, you kind of realize just you just want them to be happy. <laughs> so, uh, so I think it's a little early for that. Uh, I just want them to be happy. <laughs> and going back to your time at Microsoft, you you put in some time there, and eventually decided you wanted to enter the startup world. So, what was it about uh, creating a startup that was appealing to you? Um, that's a great question. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I've always wanted to start a, a to, to, to start a company, and I'm not entirely sure like what the reason behind it was, but it just felt like always something I had to do or like a goal of mine. Um, but yeah, no, other people have asked me before of like, you know, like what is the drive? Like what drives you? Like why do you feel like you need to do these certain these uh, certain things? And yeah, I mean, the real answer is I'm not entirely sure. It's just something that I've always thought I had to do. <laughs> But just in general, even going from because before you launched your own startup, you you worked at startups. And so from going from something like Microsoft, like a big, well-established company, what prompted you to make the change and work at another startup? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the way I even got to Microsoft, which to your point, is definitely not a startup. Um, <laughs> so firstly, I was an intern there. Um, and Microsoft was a great place to be an intern at. Um, they practically paid for my school. And so that was a you know, very uh, tempting thing to, to keep coming back to them. And when I was trying to figure out where to go full-time, um, like after college, 
there was a team within Microsoft that was like the incubation team within Microsoft. And so it was within the office org, but it really attracted just amazing minds within Microsoft, um, a like 200 person team where there's, there were a ton of like subcategories or sub sub teams that were working on things that indirectly benefited Microsoft products. Um, and so effectively it was like an incubator within Microsoft. And so when I interviewed particularly for that team, I was just really inspired by kind of what they were building in particular, like the energy that they were creating within Microsoft. Um, and so I decided to join that particular team when I went to Microsoft. Um, I learned the hard way that incubate like uh, incubators or accelerators or whatever the, the terminology is within large corporations, they don't work. Um, and they don't work for various reasons. But, um, you know, predominantly, you can't quite create a startup experience within such a large organization. And so I did learn that the hard way. So I, st- I stayed at Microsoft for a year and a half, roughly. Um, and uh, and while I was there, there was a company called Tilt that was trying to poach me. Um, and, uh, and Tilt was a Silicon Valley startup started by uh, a couple of people that I knew from my from my time at Rackspace when I was interned there as well. Um, and, um, you know, I, I love my experience at, at Rackspace. And so I actually got to work with the same manager from Rackspace at Tilt uh, and that was, you know, one of the big factors of me moving there. Um, but yeah, it was a, you know, very typical Silicon Valley startup. Um, I remember watching Silicon Valley, the show before I moved <laughs> and it was too real. <laughs> it was, <laughs> um, uh, there were a lot of very eerie similarities just to get, just to paint you a picture. Um, like that's supposed and, to be a uh, joke, but it's not funny to me. <laughs> Bring it back memories. <laughs> I actually had to stop watching it. So I watched the first season. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I had to stop watching it because it was too close to home. Like, <laughs> it's a little scary how close they got it. Oh, um, man. Yeah. So so that's kind of how I landed in the startup world. So speaking of San Francisco, my understanding from a couple other interviews that you've been on is that your entry to the crypto space came in 2017 while you were in San Francisco at a dinner. Can you kind of yeah. break down that full story for our audience? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, even after COVID, I think San Francisco is the place to be if you want to be in anything tech. And uh, predominantly because you just keep rubbing your shoulders with other people who are either founders or creators or innovators or builders or makers or any of those things. Um, and so you kind of like, you know, through osmosis, like absorb some of that just by living here and going to like events and dinners and, and friend groups and whatnot. Um, and so that's exactly what happened to me. So, um, you know, my my boyfriend at the time, now husband, um, he used to live with uh, Juan Benet. Uh, and Juan Benet is the founder of a company called Protocol Labs that is responsible for Filecoin, which is one of the, mm-hmm. you know, now pretty big crypto projects. Um, and back then, their biggest uh, project or the biggest uh, outward-facing project was IPFS, which was still actually very much used today. Um, and yeah, so I, I went to uh, a dinner at Juan's house. And um, I think it was someone's birthday. And it was, you know, 30, 40 uh, person dinner. And you know, everyone there was talking about Ethereum. <laughs> uh, and I remember like Googling the ride back of like, what is Ethereum? <laughs> um, and, uh, and for what it's worth, I didn't actually get it at first. Um, you know, like back in that, back in the 2017 era, like if you Googled, I think even on the Ethereum, um, you know, foundation website, like examples of how you can use Ethereum or smart contracts, the examples they had were something like, you know, governance and voting. And and I was confused. I was like, why is that such a big deal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why is there such a huge hype about something like decentralized voting? And because I didn't fully understand it, I kind of like wanted to dig deeper into it. Um, and uh, and so I started talking to more people about it, like going to meetups. Um, and the very first ETH Global Hackathon was announced shortly afterwards in the in, uh, University of Waterloo called ETH Waterloo. Um, and I decided to go. And that was basically my entry point into crypto. And how did that lead to starting Iron Fish? What was the what's the story behind Iron Fish? And then if you can maybe transition to what is Iron Fish as well? Yeah, so I guess my story actually did start at that hackathon, at that very first hackathon. Um, and um, you know, I, I I went to the hackathon. It was you know October twenty seventeen, I think, and um, I didn't know much. I only knew that IPFS existed because I was at that dinner <laughs> and I learned Solidity at the hackathon. So I was like Googling tutorials like while they were doing the intro talks at the hackathon. Um, and so what I built was decentralized video streaming. So 
um, you know, how do you take a video and like chunk it up into smaller pieces and put it in IFTP fast and so you have like a decentralized video streamer. Um, and then to qualify for some prizes, I put in like a like a fake maker DAO sort of component to it. <laughs> <laughs> so I could qualify for some of the maker prizes, <laughs> um, nice. which is great because I actually did get that prize. Um, but uh, but a couple of things kind of happened at that hackathon. One is um, I realized how open the crypto community is. Um, and to a large extent, I still stand by that statement. I think the crypto community, at least the the right, you know, the right part of the crypto community um, is still very welcoming, very open, probably the most welcoming, the most open that I've ever seen. Um, and so, yeah, that hackathon, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my MetaMask integration and it's not working. And so I asked for help and a mentor comes by and, and he says, well, I'm not sure what you're doing wrong, but you can ask Dan Finlay for help. He's sitting right behind you. And uh, Dan at the time wrote MetaMask. Like he was the predominant person who like wrote MetaMask. Nice, <laughs> and so nice. like at 3.30 a.m., you know, the person who wrote MetaMask is helping me debug MetaMask integration for a hackathon. I was just like, wow, like, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, this is a really, really cool community. Um, so, you know, for my kind of demo presentation for the hackathon, um, you had to upload your video to like an Amazon server in order for the video to be transcoded. You need like to be broken up, broken up into smaller chunks so that it can be used for a video streaming like editor. And I realized that like that portion, the compute part was not decentralized. Like everything else was decentralized, but the compute part was not. And so I kind of went down this like rabbit hole of how do you do decentralized compute? Meaning if I give, you know, if I give a server, if I give you a task of transcoding a video, which is, you know, fairly complex or fairly, I guess, expensive in terms of compute, and you give me a response back, how do I know that the response you gave me is correct without redoing the computation myself? So for instance, if I tell you like transcode this video from one full format to another, and you give me an output, how do I very quickly verify that the output is actually correct and you're not just giving me garbage to get paid, right? Um, so I went down that rabbit hole of like, how do you do uh, honest computation? Um, and that's how I got to zero-knowledge proofs. So zero-knowledge proofs are literally built for this in theory. Um, so zero-knowledge proofs are a tool for how to do honest computation. Now, obviously, in terms of their capabilities, we're very, very far from doing as, something as complex as, you know, video transcoding. Um, but at the heart of it, you know, that that it, it is effectively a tool for honest computation. Uh, and that's kind of what led me down the path that eventually became Ironfish. <laughs> so I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah. And just, it well, even if you could keep going on that thought of, of creating Ironfish, um, what specifically Ironfish is, and just like, that just seems like a monumental task. Like you understand this use case, what like the problem, the why, what you're going to work on, but then like it's a lot to get it from that point to where you're at today. So can you take us through that journey? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like just to uh, uh, to keep going on that on there, um, I started talking to more people, and in 2017, 2018 era, if you wanted to learn about zero knowledge proofs, it was very hard <laughs> because there was a Wikipedia page that described Alice and Bob running through a cave, which is very, very high level, very theoretical, and then went from that level all the way down to like very academic journals where they, you know, the first sentence had something like a sextic twist Edwards curve kind of, you know, summary, <laughs> and you're like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to understand this. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, you know, you're kind of thrown into like, what is a elliptic curve pairing definition, like right off the bat, and you're like fairly lost. Um, and so at the time, you know, the way I learned about zero knowledge proofs is, again, kind of like in, in the vein of the hackathon story is, I asked for help. <laughs> um, and again, the reason why I'm, you know, I'm such, I'm so bullish on this, on this industry as a whole is because the people in this industry, at least the ones that are here, like to actually build, are incredibly supportive. Um, so very early on, you know, I got to talk to some Z, some of the Zcash founding scientists about how zero knowledge proofs work, um, or about um, you, you know, I got to talk to Alessandro Kiezek, who was one of the uh, founders of Recursive Snarks, who was a uh, still a professor at Berkeley, and I got to speak to uh, some of his undergrad students uh, who were working for him at the time. Um, and then I got to talk to some of the, the Stanford mafia, like the Dan Bonet plus, <laughs> plus his students. Um, and so at the time, uh, Zoom Launch Proofs were pretty much like uh, synonymous with privacy because the only projects that really under, that really utilized them were privacy projects. Um, 
And, and so that to me was very interesting. Um, and then when I started looking at crypto as a whole of, you know, like, let's just assume that in 50 years or 5, 10, 50 years, like whatever the horizon is, you know, crypto does become like the fundamental payment system of tomorrow. Like, what are we missing? Um, and, uh, and it seemed like privacy was by far the biggest thing that people, in my opinion, were kind of ignoring. Um, and at some point, you know, I started going to like hackathons and, and meetups and, and conferences all around the world. And I kind of decided to switch to crypto full time. And so a combination of me wanting to be in crypto full time, zero knowledge proofs being this really cool technology and kind of understanding that privacy is not only important for the space, but it's a huge opportunity that's been overlooked for you know various reasons uh, by by many many other teams. Um, and so yeah, so we started like in in uh, late 2018, 2019, and then we wrote rewrote the entire code base in 2020. <laughs> uh, so the project is roughly two and a half years, even though the company is roughly four years. Um, and our mission has always been how do we bring uh, privacy to crypto? Um, and and now that I've been that I've gone through this four year journey. I now understand why there are so few privacy projects. And, and the answer is, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard from a technical, uh, you know, from a technical angle. And it's definitely hard from a UI angle. Like, how do you make uh, privacy tech actually usable and easy for people to use? Um, and then it's really hard from a regulatory perspective as well. Uh, so happy to talk about any of those things or all of the above. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been kind of a long journey for us to get here. Well, it's interesting when we talk about privacy, because I think sometimes, you know, particularly maybe by mainstream media and whatnot, when they focus on crypto and like the the privacy side of it, it's, it's in a negative connotation or they talk about the potential dangers. But on the flip side, it's crazy when you think the lack of privacy in, in crypto with our wallets and stuff of like, no one today would ever be telling multiple people what they're holding in their wallets or their bank account or like be able to see all their assets. That's something that very much it's, you know, it's almost taboo to talk about that. You don't talk about what you have and yet it's so transparent. And so where do you think that that needs to kind of go in terms of, um, you know, you talked about the regulatory challenges and everything like that, but in order to change that, that narrative when it comes to crypto and privacy. Yeah, I mean, the way we talk about Ironfish is we're building something that is actually more similar, like more analogous to how the non-crypto financial system works today. Mm. So exactly like what you said, you know, if you go to, if you go buy something in a store, the cashier doesn't get to see your entire transaction history and your friend's transactional history <laughs> and yeah. all your holdings and savings and so on. That that's just really bizarre. Um, and yet in crypto, that's basically how it works today. Um, you know, you're almost forced to de-anonymize yourself whenever you use it. So for instance, if I say like, hey, you owe me $5 in Ethereum, um, I have to give you my public address. So just by me asking for funds, I'm actually like de-anonymizing myself. Um, and I remember talking to one person who was not a crypto native person, but I was trying to explain to him like the, the problem that we're trying to solve. And, and I think he like purchased like uh, some sort of an NFT that he showed me. And I showed him his wallet. I was trying to walk him through the problem. And he was just, he was just amazed. He was like, what? Like, you can see this even in incognito window. Like, it just wasn't like clicking <laughs> for him. <laughs> that everything was just so out in the open. And like, he was like a smart person. <laughs> wow. um, and so I think when you explain to people, even regulators, right? Like, this is the state of crypto today. Like, the transparency comes from a requirement and how validation works. Um, and, and the reason why Bitcoin was, was, you know, as transparent as it is today is because Bitcoin by itself was a breakthrough, you know? So it's like Bitcoin by itself is extremely amazing. Uh, we just didn't have those privacy tools back then. And, and now we do. And now it's like time to start building things with privacy. Um, but yeah, you're totally right there right now. There's, uh, you know, privacy has almost become like a, like a dirty word. <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, it's associated with like money laundering and illicit activity and, you know, and, and people using the dark markets and whatnot. And the reality is, statistically, that's not true. And second of all, privacy is really, really important. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you can build privacy in a way that um, still allows regular entities to be compliant. Um, that is how the non-crypto financial world works today. Um, yeah, so, you know, I think for from our perspective, we have like a pretty heavy job ahead of us of, of education. I'm like educating people that, 
not all privacy protocols are the same. You can still stay compliant while supporting your privacy protocol, depending on the privacy protocol. Um, and again, it's actually way safer uh, for a crypto user to use a privacy preserving technology than to have everything out in the open. So tell us a little bit more about how Ironfish approaches the the problem of privacy in crypto today. It's my understanding that Ironfish is a layer one blockchain. Uh, I know you've got a token that goes along with it. So how does Ironfish maybe AES, how does it uh, approach the, that problem and look to solve it? But also if you could tie that to maybe a comparison of other privacy-based blockchains who have maybe attempted to solve it in maybe different ways and, and you know what those differences are. Yeah. So before I kind of answer that question, I also want to say that I am very uh, like appreciative and grateful and admire anyone who tries to tackle on privacy. So, <laughs> you know, even when talking about competitors, like I feel like once you go through this journey and understand how hard it is, you kind of have this deep admiration for anyone who tries to tackle this, this problem space. So, you know, like I'm, I think the fact that we have different privacy protocols is a good thing. Firstly, competition is a good thing because it forces us to be more innovative and forces us to learn from one another and make a better product that the, that the end user actually gets. Um, and the way, like there's no quote unquote right answer for how you strike this balance between privacy and compliance. Um, and I think the fact that we have so many different kind of approaches to it is almost like stress testing, like what is allowed, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, what, which hopefully will get us faster to the answer of, you know, what is the solution here? Um, so for Ironfish today, so Ironfish is, like you said, it's a layer one. So it's a brand new blockchain. All transactions are encrypted, meaning that they are private. And the validation does happen through zero knowledge proofs that are associated with that transaction. Um, and what we did was we added multi-asset support or custom asset support. So Ironfish does not have smart contracts. If you're familiar with Ethereum, for instance, Ethereum has a pretty rich smart contract or programming capability. Um, Ironfish does not have that. We just allow people to create custom assets with very kind of rigid functionalities that they can uh, that they can customize and parameterize. <laughs> um, and, um, and so that's practically it. And the reason why we did that is because we want Ironfish to be used as a privacy platform. So we want to attract bridge operators or potentially even build bridges ourselves to kind of link Ironfish to other chains, primarily transparent chains like Ethereum or, or any, uh, any other ones you might have heard of, um, so that those chains can use Ironfish as their privacy platform. So the, the use cases that we're trying to go after is, you know, let's say you have USDC on Ethereum and you want that to live in a fully private environment so you can actually get to like a, like a digital cash experience. Um, you know, our end goal is that you, you'll be able to transfer that USDC from Ethereum onto Ironfish and have that, those assets live in a fully private layer. Um, the other thing that we're trying to go after is, is Bitcoin. Like we don't have fully private Bitcoin at the moment. Um, and so having wrapped Bitcoin Ironfish is one approach of how to get there. Um, so yeah, in terms of like how are we, how we differ from other layer one chains, we view Ironfish as very collaborative. Like we're actually building privacy for assets that might originate in other, on, uh, on other chains. Uh, and I think most other layer ones don't do that. Um, and then in terms of the non-layer one solutions, so for instance, there, there are a lot of projects that are building privacy and a smart contracts feature for other blockchains. Um, Ironfish aims to work with many blockchains at the same time. So you can kind of integrate with Ethereum, Solana, Nier, and so on in the future. Um, and have all those assets from other chains live in one huge anonymity set. So to try and understand the um, like the user side of this, the the, the user experience side, um, if I was, let's say, I'm using Ethereum, this is where I've got my assets today, and I want to um, move them to Ironfish so that I can um, anonymize my transactions. I bridge them over. They're now um, in Ironfish um, and I perform some transactions. Do I have to perform those transactions then with other addresses that are, you know, only within the Ironfish ecosystem? And then 
do I then, you know, if I want to move back to Ethereum, do I give away my identity if I move it back to my wallet? Is the idea if you want to stay anonymous but want to leave the chain, I then have to go to say a new address or, you know, how how does a user actually approach this from like that, you know, that if I was going through the motions? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, let's say that you're starting from Ethereum. So you would have to work with a bridge operator. Um, and a bridge operator would basically carry that asset onto Ironfish. So let's say you do start with USDC on Ethereum, then you use a bridge and you get to wrap USDC on Ironfish. Um, when you're in Ironfish, you can transact with any other Ironfish address. Whenever you make any transfer on Ironfish, all of that is completely private, meaning that the transaction does not reveal who the sender uh, the, the recipient, the amount, or the asset type is. Um, so all that happens fully privately. And then once you're ready to, let's say, go back onto the Ethereum side, you would then go back to the bridge operator and give them the destination address on Ethereum. So that could be your original destination address for Ethereum, or it could be a different, uh, a different address altogether. And I guess I'm not... Um, my understanding of how bridges work is only so-so, and I've never really inspected the, you know, the transaction information uh so i don't know totally it shows where it's coming from but let's say i was I, I did that and now i'm going back to ethereum when i use the bridge to uh, move my tokens from ironfish to ethereum like does that reveal any information in regards to where it came from or does it just say came from you know the bridge contract over to the ethereum address i'm just really i'm curious if the you know the idea is privacy is there a way that you know by leaving ironfish one could be tracked back to sort of like the source so um so your latter explanation was actually more correct so the bridge operator would simply say like you know you had like I have permission to give these assets over to this um, to this address that was specified by the user. Uh, but yeah, in terms of like whenever you're interacting with a transparent uh, with a transparent layer, you are leaking some privacy. So, for instance, um, you know, like um, one way to do that is denominations. So, like let's say you put in like one point three three seven ETH or, or or die or USDC onto Ironfish, and yes, you have a complete privacy on the Ironfish side. But let's say exactly like an hour later, or like some very short amount of time later, you go back onto the Ethereum side and you withdraw exactly 1.337, you know, ETH out or whatever. Um, then you know you can start making some um, some assumptions about what what actually happened. Right. Um, so you still have to be you know somewhat cognizant of how your actions are revealing your information. Um, but one, but yeah, at, when you're at the Ironfish side, uh, none of that is none of that actually is revealed. So Elena, my understanding is that the mainnet launched on April 20th. So how did that launch go? Um, was it, were you, were, were there any nerves launching like that, that like question marks of whether it would all go completely successfully? Did it go completely successfully? Can you walk us through that process? Yeah. So before we launched mainnet, we launched quite a few test nets. So we already had a lot of practice of actually launching a brand new chain. Um, so we ran uh, different test nets all the way from December of 2021. So it was a very, <laughs> it was a very long running test net. Um, and yeah, every time we uh, we launched a new test net, we had a different goal in mind for how to stress test our interest differently. But we were already kind of building a muscle for how to do the actual the actual launch. Um, and we did have uh, you know launches that were less successful. So for instance, our last test net even. Um, you know, uh, Ironfish again is a proof of work chain. And so when you kind of launch your blockchain, you kind of have to guess what will the hash power of the network be when you launch it. Because uh, if you set the target for your first block to be, or a, a difficulty for your block, for your first block to be, you know, too high, then it might take a very long time for someone to find a subsequent block. And likewise, if you set it too low, then you might have people finding way too many blocks at the same time, causing a lot of forking issues. So you kind of have to, you know, really guess correctly um, of what the initial difficulty for your first block should be. Um, for our third test net, we actually set the difficulty way too high. We had to literally relaunch it because it was very anticlimactic. Like we launched this thing, <laughs> did a whole like, you know, Discord like live stage, and, like, you know, getting people pumped for, for a new test net. And 
you know, I was like <laughs> half an hour of like nothing happening. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we had to like actually relaunch it with a much lower difficulty, you know, to kind of get, uh, get it going. Um, and so for launch, you know, we, we spoken to a lot of our professional miners, uh, just kind of get a sense of like, what is going to be the hashing activity, uh, on mainnet. Um, and we put it at like, I don't remember, like between 100 and 200 times uh, more than what we've seen in our previous test nets. Um, and we basically guessed it like extremely well. Um, the first block was found in like 90 seconds, which is perfect. Uh, our block times are 60 seconds. And so if you if you look at our like, you know, um, average block time, it went like from 90 to 60 extremely fast. Um, even though the hash power was, was rising. Uh, so when we launched... Uh, our hash power was like 200 times what we've, what we've seen at our busiest test net previously and actually climbed to some like 500 times <laughs> and then stabilized to, uh, you know, that, that additional number. Um, so I think the launch itself was actually extremely smooth given, you know, the kind of the, the, um, the ambiguity of who is going to be mining. Um, we had some miners mine who have approached us ahead of time. And so we kind of knew that they were going to be mining. And then we had some miners who kind of like came out of the woodwork. Like we didn't know about their existence and they just started mining and they were, you know, adding to adding to a lot of hash power. Um, so, yeah, so I think that the launch actually went um, extremely smoothly, <laughs> which I'm, you know, super grateful for. What is the reason um, that it's proof of work? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, so we thought about this a lot, obviously, because we started building Ironfish at this era where all new layer ones were proof of stake or variation of proof of stake or different types of proof of stake projects. Um, and so for us to be proof of work was extremely atypical <laughs> and, and you know definitely very strange. Um, and I think it still uh, actually was a really great decision for us. Um, so our whole thesis for Ironfish is how do we make this project decentralized? Um, like, you know, that is definitely the hill that I will die on. <laughs> I think decentralization really, really matters, especially for something like, like a privacy platform <laughs> that is already kind of fairly controversial. Um, and so for us, like decentralization was definitely key. So there's a lot of like different ways for how you, uh, for how you categorize, like, or how do you uh, measure decentralization? And so for us, it was uh, one metric that we look at is number of full nodes a number of miners, meaning how many individuals can get kind of onboarded onto Ironfish and actually start supporting the network? Um, and how do we lower the friction for new people entering the system so that more people do it? Um, and so for, for proof of stake coins, you know, you, you typically have validators and full nodes. Um, and if you look at some of the newer proof of stake projects that are coming out, typically those numbers are fairly small because you have to really kind of encourage people to, um, you know, uh, to, uh, to run these nodes. And so if you look at some of the projects, they might have uh, low hundreds of full nodes or full validators. Um, and so for us, it was, you know, very much the goal of how do we make it so that any person with a laptop or a computer or, <laughs> or, or any piece of hardware could potentially run a full node um, fairly quickly uh, and, you know, again, kind of like reducing the friction. Um, so to kind of give you some stats for phase two, which was our second incentivized test net, um, we asked people to turn on their telemetry, meaning that they were going to uh, give us some stats about their full nodes uh, in order to get points on the leaderboard. Um, and we had roughly 11,000 nodes on, on testnet phase two. Um, testnet phase three, I think we had a bot problem, but we had, we reported 60,000 nodes, which you know, again, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think there were some bot farms there that were running that. Um, right now that we're mainnet launched, telemetry is optional, meaning that people have to run a separate command to give us those metrics. Um, and we're reporting, you know, roughly between 800 to 1,000 nodes um, like today, um, which I think is actually a very, very healthy number considering that, you know, this is not incentivized in terms of them even providing that telemetry. Um, so I think that's actually a really good number. So proof of work basically like let us lower the barrier of entry quite dramatically because again, anyone can, can, can just run a full node. And I think in this new era where most projects are proof of stake, miners are very, very intrigued at looking at new proof of work projects. Um, and so that was actually a pretty big plus for us because we were now kind of starting to develop this ecosystem and this part of our community that are you know, either professional miners or hobby miners or just solo miners or people who are, 
you know, adjoining mining pools. And so we're kind of like carving out this really unique space in our community uh, for people who are looking for new projects that are through the proof of work space that don't have many other alternatives right now. And what are all the roles that the iron coin plays in, in the ecosystem or on the platform? And, uh, and what did you learn going through the launch of that coin? Um, so what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, well, obviously it plays a role in uh, the mining process, but like as far as value goes, or does it add to like, um, you know, we you talked about the importance of decentralization is, uh, you know, does the token play a role in that at all? Or, you know, what are the aspects of the tokenomics of, of uh, iron? Yeah. Um, so all transaction fees are paid in iron and all block rewards are paid in iron. So this is very analogous to, for instance, Ethereum. So I also think of Ethereum as a platform. Ethereum is a platform for smart contracts and all transaction fees are paid in Ethereum. Um, so for us, it's kind of fairly analogous. So we want to be a privacy platform that provides privacy for any other crypto asset. Again, ones that even might be originating from other chains um, and the transaction fees are not made in iron. Um, you know, nothing comes for free. So like a lot of times regulators would ask or they would say like, I like the blockchain part. I just don't like the cryptocurrency part of a blockchain. Um, and so it's really important to set your incentives properly. Um, and that's why the native coin is also part of the block award. Um, so that's basically the tokenomics of it. And then when it comes to just kind of like the future and how you see cryptocurrencies evolving and, and privacy and everything like that, like what... What do you see kind of in the future, like five years down the road? How, how will it be different than the way people interact with crypto today? Um, well, I'm definitely very bullish on privacy. So my answer is... <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that into consideration. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, like um, this might sound corny, but if you think to the beginning of the internet, like we did not have encryption when the internet first started. All traffic was plain text, unencrypted, um, you know, and fairly unsecure. Um, and, you know, the original quote unquote crypto wars were crypto wars of the 90s when, uh, you know, people were trying to push encryption. So I don't even remember like the Netscape browser <laughs> back in the day. Um, you know, they came out with uh, SSL technology or, T or uh, uh, TLS technology, which is now like HTTPS effectively. Uh, and back, the, back in the day, that Encryption was fairly controversial because we just came out of the Cold War, right? We kind of learned that strong encryption is a huge advantage in war, firstly, but it's, you know, it's effectively a, like a weapon, <laughs> even though even though it's just knowledge of, of how to encrypt uh, uh, messages across the internet. Um, and so, you know, kind of fast forward to today, not only is encryption kind of like opened up the entire like e-commerce industry because it allows secure communication. People now could purchase things online without having their credit card information stolen. Uh, but now you would be hard pressed to find a website that doesn't use HTTPS, right? Um, and so now, like you know, you and I are actually using HTTPS right now, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we don't have to do anything extra for it. Like we're, we don't have to understand how Diffie-Hellman works, right? Even though we actually are using Diffie-Hellman in order to like create that initial handshake to you know, to have a shared secret key so that both of our uh, messages are encrypted with something the other person can decrypt. We don't have to understand any of the intricacies of how the cryptography works, and we don't have to do anything extra because the technology has kind of caught up with convenience. Um, and so, you know, in 5, 10, whatever the horizon is, I do view uh, that either all or majority of crypto transactions are going to have a privacy aspect to it, and it's going to be so seamless that people are not even going to think about it. It's going to be like the plumbing of crypto, just like how you and I don't think about the fact that we currently use HTTPS. You know, we don't even have to understand how the technology works. We just use it. You know, I, I do really think that the future of crypto has to have some sort of a privacy component to it. And it has to also be as seamless and convenient for people to use as, you know, the video streaming that we're using right now. And on that exact note, it um, brings the, the question around to Ironfish and like your mission with Ironfish. Is Ironfish trying to to solve that problem or to to 
to get to a place down the road where it is the that plumbing you speak of that provides the infrastructure or the the technology within other blockchains to allow for for privacy on or off at a at you know at the user's whim easily or is ironfish sort of uh, its own thing where it, you know it it it's its own blockchain that uh will will develop privacy technology um but maybe then you know lend out your uh your learnings to the rest of the blockchain industry or how does that all work and, and does that question make sense yeah no yeah. so we're definitely aiming for the former part of that uh which is we want to be the plumbing for crypto um and that's a super ambitious goal and we're definitely not there yet and so launching a privacy layer one is just like, you know, step zero in that goal. <laughs> like mm -hmm. we need to have something so is so we can build on top of it to get there. Um, so that is exactly what happened every April 20th as we launched that kind of fundamental privacy platform where, you know, we have a lot of ways to go in terms of scalability, uh, but at least we solved that first problem of like privacy. Uh, and now how do we build bridges and like the rest scalability solutions and programmability and like all these other challenges might come, uh, might come later. Uh, but yeah, that is definitely the first step and kind of that, <laughs> that vision of being the plumbing for crypto. And in regards to what you've mentioned about like regulation, you've, you mentioned regulation throughout, but we haven't really talked about it yet. Um, and I'm curious, like, how do you approach privacy on a blockchain while taking into consideration regulation, which right now is still only semi-existent, um, but clearly is controversial when considering, you know, privacy because of nefarious activities and bad actors and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So regulation is definitely um, a tricky one. It's kind of tricky for several reasons. There's there's kind of like the direct kind of ambiguities of what is regulate regulation for crypto today, but also for privacy technology today or, or for privacy plus crypto technology today. And then there's like the second order effects, which is uh, what I'm seeing or like what Ironfish is seeing currently is that the fear of regulation is also pretty effective. So for instance, you know, even though we may not have concrete rules of or concrete uh, guidelines in terms of like what is regulation for for privacy projects are, a lot of regulated entities don't even want to find out, right? So they would rather not even take the risk of supporting a privacy project, not because there's active regulation against privacy, but because you know they're too afraid <laughs> of the possibility that uh, by supporting a privacy project they could get in trouble now or in the future. Um, and so that has been like fairly hard to navigate of like you know, of, of kind of like making this argument that a regulated entity today can certainly support a privacy project, especially one like Ironfish with a full view key, um, which I'll get to in a second, um, you know, and still be compliant. Um, and so, you know, every argument that, that, I, that I kind of like make in that regard makes sense to even existing regulators or former regulators. Um, however, because of this ambiguity, um, a lot of regular entities don't even want to kind of interact and take the risk. Um, and so that has been like super challenging to, uh, to work with. But in terms of like the regulation side, I mean, like we learned a lot from Tornado Cash. And I think we're still learning a lot from Tornado Cash. <laughs> and uh, if your <laughs> listeners kind of don't know the full story, I'm happy um, to walk them through yeah, it. Yeah, please do. Yeah, please love do. To okay, that. cool. <laughs> so, um, so Tornado Cash was a smart contract on Ethereum that provided a privacy layer for Ethereum assets. So you can kind of think of it as like this dark pool, which is a smart contract where people could deposit funds into Tornado Cash and then withdraw those same funds to a different wallet on Ethereum and therefore breaking the link between the depositor and the recipient. Um, and, um, you know, did it provide the best privacy? No, you could argue that Aztec, which was also launched at the time, actually provided better privacy. Um, but it had a, it had a fairly high volume and high TBL, so total value locked um, for, for privacy projects. So I think it consistently had over a billion uh, funds just kind of sitting on the smart contract because people prefer uh, uh, prefer to kind of park their their money in a privacy layer, um, and so even though it might have not provided the best privacy, it was extremely easy to use. So it's kind of another example of if you make your product convenient for people to use, and people are more likely to use it. Um, so if you were to go on their website, you know their online wallet was extremely easy, like very clear, very concise. I had like a deposit button, a withdraw button, <laughs> very very intuitive to use. And a lot of people used it. 
Unfortunately, um, North Korea uh, hackers also uh, unfortunately use tornado cash. Um, so I don't know if you remember, but there are a certain uh, there were a couple bridge hacks that happened, like the Ronin Bridge, Nomad Bridge, uh, and a few others. Um, and the North Korean hackers, namely a group called the Lazarus Group, used the funds that they got from those bridge hacks and laundered that money through Tornado Cash. And it's unclear what that amount is. I've seen estimates of 600 million to like over a billion of money laundered through Tornado Cash from in, in that regard. Um, and the U.S. Treasury, especially OFAC, so OFAC is, uh, is, a, is a body within the U.S. Treasury um, that, is, that deals with sanctions, looked at all this activity and um, and sanctioned Tornado Cash, the Ethereum, like all the Ethereum addresses associated with, with uh, Tornado Cash. Um, and so what happened was when that initial statement came out, the initial statement was very much like, you know, Tornado Cash is sanctioned. And people had a question mark of, well, what does that mean? Because Tornado Cash is code, like it's a smart contract. Like you can't just sanction <laughs> code. Uh, and so GitHub, for instance, deplatformed Tornado Cash almost instantly because, you know, for them, it's like way too risky to figure out like, are they sanctioning code or the smart contract of the company? Like, we don't know. <laughs> um, and so uh, it kind of created this huge kind of backlash in the community of was code just sanctioned? Was a smart contract sanctioned? You know, typically sanctions refer to persons, but this is like a smart contract. It's very confusing. And then, you know, um, uh, funds were frozen even from, normal users who are definitely not terrorists and so like there were a lot, a lot of kind of like outrage there as well um, i remember just just sorry to cut no, in because no. i remember one of the funny stories that came out of that was people basically trying to make a point by using tornado cash to send money to like prominent figures wallets yep. to then be like oh look uh like jimmy kimmel's yeah. used uh tornado cash is he going to jail now kind of thing so it was one one of the stories i remember coming out of that whole fiasco but, but yeah, please continue no, yeah no that was that was exactly it and so uh, the US Treasury did kind of correct themselves very quickly that code is not sanctioned. Code is still free speech. Like that is not sanctioned. So GitHub actually did kind of bring them back on. Um, but Tornado Cash is still sanctioned. <laughs> and so, uh, and so people have this like really, um, I mean, still like there's, there's actually two lawsuits right now that are happening against OPAC, um, basically against the US Treasury Department, um, because of this kind of like this question mark of like, wait a minute, is what you, is, is what is, it, were those sanctions actually legal? <laughs> uh, because again, they kind of like sanctioned this decentralized piece of code, um, which is very bizarre. Like when you think about it. Um, but in terms of like what what, the, what how privacy projects took that to heart is all of a sudden all the privacy projects started having this conversation about like you know how do we build privacy for the normal user, but also catch bad actors or prevent prevent bad actors from using the platform in the first place. Um, and that is extremely hard. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I think different projects approach this very differently. Uh, so some projects, for instance, try to mitigate this with public statements of like, you know, if you're ever caught that we're going to freeze your funds, um, like if you're a bad actor and you, you try to use our privacy uh, protocol, then you're going to be kind of frozen forever. Um, and, and that's fine. But again, it's, it's really hard to catch bad activity when you're also trying to provide privacy. Um, the way we did it at Ironfish is we basically beefed up our view key. So on Ethereum, for instance, you have your private key that lets you spend money and you have your public key that you can request money to. For Ironfish, we have a private key, a public key, and then we also have a view key. And a view key gives you full transactional history. Um, so for instance, you can kind of think of it as um, like right now you can go to Etherscan for Ethereum and see all the transactional history for that particular wallet. On Ironfish, you can't do that because everything is encrypted. However, if you have a view key for a particular wallet, you can see all the transactional uh, details for that particular wallet. So, for instance, you can't. So, if if you know if um, if I sent money to you and I gave someone else my view key, they would be able to see the fact that I sent money to you, but they would not be able to see any more information about your wallet because they don't have your view key. Um, and so, we kind of approach this in a different way by by kind of beefing up this view key and. Kind of making the statement that this is exactly how banks work today. So, for instance, if you are a suspicious actor uh, and a bank gets a subpoena or a warrant to kind of reveal 
you know, your, your bank statements, um, they would, they would be able to provide information for that particular user and not the entire kind of like ecosystem <laughs> of everyone that user has ever kind of interacted with. Um, and so we're, we're kind of, again, saying like, let's not reinvent the wheel. We already have really good like procedures in place in the non-crypto world for how to catch bad actors with this level of visibility. Let's just kind of mirror those tactics in the crypto world. Um, and that's exactly how VQ's Fire and Fish work. Do you get any pushback from people who are really, really like privacy at all costs kind of thing that like, no, there shouldn't be a view key because, you know, what if the the government or the entity that wanted to see it is like, maybe they had an issue with that or something like, is that a tricky one to handle or, or have you gotten any pushback from that side? Um, we haven't gotten a ton of pushback from that. The um, Where we did get that similar pushback is from um, people who are in like the Monero community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, for, for us, I, I think most people understand at this point that whichever privacy solution will quote unquote win the space or get mass adoption or get like actual, um, you know, mass like uh, usage they're going to have to figure out how to strike this balance between privacy and compliance. And I think we actually like reached a really, really good balance. Yes, every account has a view key, but you who created the wallet, you have full autonomy of who you give this view key to. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you're using a regular exchange, you kind of understand that you have no privacy while you're using this exchange. But if you move your funds to a fresh new wallet that the exchange has no kind of visibility into, now you're back into like this, you know, full autonomy of, of, of your own, of your own funds, um, which I think is a, a pretty, a pretty good balance because, you know, uh, it's not people that get regulated, it's like regulated entities that get regu- regulated. <laughs> and so for our job is how do we bolster the tools that make their job easier um, while still kind of providing the privacy for, for the regular uh, crypto user of today. So Elena, we're getting close to the end of this conversation and we're going to ask you the same three questions we ask every guest of Show Me the Crypto. But before we get to that set of three questions, I have one other question. And I came across a video of yourself from, I think it was five years ago. And you were doing a presentation on how to build your own crypto kitty. And so my thoughts are, or my question is, what are your thoughts on how the NFT popularity, like going from you giving that presentation five years ago to then seeing kind of the 2021 to really now like present time boom of NFTs. What are your overall thoughts on kind of the moment that NFTs had? Yeah. Um, so the way I got into crypto is by giving those talks on how to write your own ERC 721 smart contract. Mm-hmm. And my whole, my whole spiel was if I can live code an ERC 721 smart contract on stage in under 30 minutes with like a really basic front end, then so can you and with tests. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I wanted people to understand like, you know, back in the day, there was like the ERC 20 craze was happening. Um, and I thought ERC 721s were way more interesting because they could represent not just collectibles, but other things like house deeds or, or messages. Um, and I think it was much easier for people to, to conceptualize uh, what, what an, a non-fungible token is. Um, and so I had a lot of fun doing that. That's kind of how I decided to go into crypto full-time of like, wow, like it's such a green space. I can do so much here. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I think I was definitely early. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and exploring and like really trying to push uh, NFTs as a concept. Um, and I think like for privacy, it's actually kind of the same thing. Like, I'm kind of, you know, I think, you know, when we started working on privacy, it was definitely way too early to start working on privacy, which is definitely the the best time to start working on something when it's way too early. <laughs> you just need to figure out how to like convince VCs to give you money for something that is <laughs> slightly too early for it to be hype. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I'm super bullish on Iron Vision, very bullish on privacy in general, because I do think that the next big push is going to be how do we add privacy to uh, to different parts of crypto in different parts of ways. So, uh, so yeah, good question about the NFTs because, yeah, I think I was definitely three three years early. Yeah, <laughs> way ahead of the curve uh, on NFTs. And yeah, I think we're we're slightly early in privacy, which again is the best is the best time to actually launch and start. 
Totally. Well, this has been, like I said, an awesome conversation. You've done a great job kind of explaining everything regarding Ironfish and just the greater conversation of privacy as well. But you're not off the hook yet. We have a three question segment called You Had Me at Crypto. We ask these questions to every single guest. Alpha is going to ask you those. Okay, Elena, you ready? Okay. All right. The first question, who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Oh, this is so hard. I should have prepared. <laughs> um, oh gosh, let me just let me just think. Um, so I'm I'm assuming you're asking on Twitter, right? Doesn't matter in general. But uh, yeah, I mean, probably, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter is probably yeah. the most popular. Okay. Right? Like, yeah. So I guess the first thing that came to mind is this account called Zero X Food Bar. Uh, mm. <laughs> and uh, and I remember discovering that account because. Um, when the tornado cash sanctions was happening, um, you know, I'm assuming it's a dude, but I'm not sure. They <laughs> they made a really great post about uh, the privacy landscape and just like really analyze the pros and cons of like a layer one solution versus a smart contract solution versus a layer two solution. And I remember thinking like, wow, this person's like extremely knowledgeable. And so obviously I tried to hire them. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, got, I got turned down, which is fine. Um, you know, we should definitely try the not try. Um, but um, but yeah, I still, I still follow that account. And I just think like they have like really great insights and, and like uh, that, that account, like they really kind of dive deep into a certain topic before they, uh, you know, before they really like uh, go at it. And then I think, yeah, um, Autism Capital. I know it's probably an answer you get a lot, but <laughs> no, I don't think we've ever gotten that one. Have, Shockingly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. good answers. Awesome. All right. Second question: What will the price of Bitcoin be ten years from now? Oh no! <laughs> We're going so, ten years it's out. It's so far out. It's not financial yeah. advice. Yeah. It's throwing a Definitely prediction at a dartboard. I'm just thinking, like you know, Bology just made the bet that it's going to be million dollars, like you know. 90 and days. he was saying 90 days. You got 10 <laughs> years days. to get this one. So, um, <laughs> Oh, gosh. You know, I don't know because... And I think it depends, right? Like, um, like we went from 60K to like back to like 10K. <laughs> and now we're at 20K. So it's not even what year, but what month within that year. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> That's actually a, a huge difference <laughs> in terms of multiples. Um I mean, I don't know. I think of our hard press. Well, okay. So with inflation or not adjusted for inflation? Okay, not adjusted for inflation because I don't know what that's going to be. Um, I don't know, 50K? I remember like there was a Naval tweet where it's like, it's not that Bitcoin price is rising. It's that the purchasing power of USD is falling. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> right. We've had a couple answers that... that- it's interesting watching people like the wheels turning as yeah. they answer this yeah. question because there have been people who take that into effect because really the question we're just asking is in US dollars 10 years from today's date early May 2033 how many US dollars will a bitcoin be Right and yeah I mean the question is like what's going to happen to the US dollar in 10 years Oof. you yeah. know There's lots of layers <laughs> to that question yeah. So you're going I to still- 50k though 50k not adjusted for inflation. So whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> which we'll do I know, the, we'll do the I mean, math when we get there. <laughs> maybe bullish but yeah, so, I mean, which is which is kind of like basically saying it's fairly stable considering that it's, you know, yeah. not at peak today. Okay, maybe yeah. we should see something higher. I don't want like how about 500k? I just don't want the Bitcoin maxes to go after me. <laughs> 500k, perfect. Okay, there we just 10x your bet. I like there it. You go. All right. Uh, third question: What is the most underrated project in crypto? And no, you cannot choose Ironfish. Oh, um, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it, but yeah, <laughs> that's a great answer. <laughs> yeah, not saying it's not underrated, yeah. but yeah. Um, I mean, again, like, I think I'm pretty bullish on privacy projects right now. Like, you know, Aztec, I'm again, just have a lot of admiration for that project, uh, uh, for that project and what they're doing. Um, again, privacy is extremely hard. So like, very impressed with anyone trying to tackle this, but I think they're doing like really, uh, in, 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 like interesting things. Um, let's see, like I, I should give another one. Um, I think CryptoPunks are still like, I think now they're underrated. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have not to 
I know we're talking about privacy and I don't want to expose your NFT holdings, but the fact that you were in NFTs so early, I won't just say CryptoPunks, but like generally, do you have some OG NFTs in your collection? Yeah, I just have one single CryptoPunk, which I do use as my profile uh, profile picture, but it's attached to a wallet that I don't normally use. So we're okay there. Um, But yeah, um, so my now husband basically was really just really got into NFTs even back in like 2017, 2018. Um, And, uh, and he basically made me purchase a a CryptoPunk, right? He was like, you ha- like this is a really cool project. Just like buy just one, just buy one. And actually, he was really trying to push me to buy two. And I was like, I'm not going to spend three hundred dollars on a digital <laughs> picture. <laughs> That's absurd. <laughs> oh, okay. no, so, you're yeah, like, oh, I, I wish I bought two. <laughs> <laughs> so I did buy that one crypto bond for three hundred dollars, and I thought that was like absurd. <laughs> oh, I love that story. The the craziest we've heard so far is one of our guests. What what is his name? It's Alex, right? From Nansen. I think that was him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Alex from Nansen, uh, minted 20 board apes and sold them all under one E. (laughs) (laughs) I love stories like that. I mean, I have the opposite story too. Like, you know, um, I had still have quite a few loot. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and I remember like when loot like went up to like floor of eleven ETH and I was like, hmm, <laughs> should I sell or should I hold? And so I decided to hold. <laughs> so there's definitely, you know, other stories going the opposite way yeah. too. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Well Elena, like I said before, such a good job explaining everything privacy. It was an honor having you on the show. We're excited to follow along and see where Ironfish goes. But thank you for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.